All right, everybody. Thanks for coming. Open up in your Bibles to Colossians 3. Mark Jekyll's going to come and he's going to read for us. It's a short, it's a little bit of a short section, but it sets the stage for everything we've been talking about the past two Sundays and what we're going to talk about again this morning. So Mark is going to read Colossians 3, verses 18 and 19. Hold on. My bad. All right. Colossians 3, 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. All right, thank you, Mark. All right, so here we are, message number three in our marriage series on marriage, a profound mystery. That's what we're talking about. And we are using these verses in Colossians for the purpose of this little uh, mini-series. And I have been arguing the point that if you just take those two verses and try to run with them without reading them in the context of everything Paul has said so far in Colossians, that we are in danger of either overemphasizing verses 18 and 19, or perhaps even misunderstanding and misapplying them. So that is why we are going back into other passages, other things Paul has said in Colossians to make sure we're understanding what is the foundation for understanding properly what it means for a husband to love his wife and to not be harsh with her, and for a wife to submit to her husband in a way that is fitting to the Lord. So for the past couple of weeks, here's what we kind of established as a foundation. I want to, want to review this briefly here. Is that marriage ultimately, we've talked about this, marriage ultimately exists to be a picture of Jesus' covenant relationship with his bride, the church. That's why marriage exists. It exists for that purpose. And that since Jesus' covenant relationship with his church is established by grace and functions and remains and continues in grace, then a husband's and wife's relationship should also be saturated in grace. So if that's the picture we're supposed to be painting of Christ and the church, and Christ and the church's relationship is all about grace, then a husband and wife's relationship should be also all about grace. And then last week, we looked at what Paul says um, in chapter 1 of Colossians, where he says that, all things were created through him and for him. All things were created through him and for him. And we went back to Genesis and saw that Jesus was the one who intentionally created, crafted, and established marriage in very detailed and specific ways. And I want us to study this last week really with the hope that our hearts would really just stand amazed at the complexity and the creativity of God to create man and woman. If, if we were left on our own to create something like that, we would never come up with something so glorious and so amazing. And so I, I pray that's what happened last week. I hope, pray it deepened and enriched your understanding of the creation of marriage by Jesus. And then at the end last week, very briefly, we talked about what it means that in everything, he might be preeminent. Everything, including, I pray, Marriage. So everything, including marriage, Jesus is to be preeminent. And so we had this little statement last week that went like this. Marriage was created through Jesus 
and for Jesus to show off his preeminence. And we talked about it being for him and through him, that it was through him. We went to Genesis and we touched briefly on this idea that it is for him. It is for him. So all of this that we've talked about so far, that we've studied, makes me conclude that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created marriage, designed marriage for the ultimate purpose of showing off the preeminence of Christ in his relationship with his bride, the church. So using marriage, really, to show this off was not an afterthought. So I just want to plant a flag here for a moment. It wasn't as if Jesus went to the cross, died, rose from the dead, and then the Father was like, we got to come up with some kind of an analogy here to help the earth, help people understand about Christ's relationship with the church. And he went around and was like, trees to dirt. No, that won't work. Let's think of another one. And he did a process of elimination. Went, hey, marriage is kind of close like this. And he used it. We understand that it's not that way. It's exact opposite. That when Jesus, the Father and Spirit, created marriage, they already had the gospel in mind. So, so marriage exists to support the gospel, not the other way around. And really the proof of this is that we are painting a picture of something that's temporary because when we get to heaven, Jesus said there, there will be no marriage in heaven because we'll have the reality then. But right now, your life and my life, our marriages are meant to make a picture of the reality that will be fully experienced when Jesus one day comes back and takes us home. I find that really cool, personally. That, that puts my marriage in perspective of why it exists, <laughs> And it helps him getting it all mixed up to thinking it exists for other reasons or for other purposes. So that is huge and foundational for us. And it's practical when we start to have conflicts with each other, when we can't make decisions. It's practical in those ways. And we're going to tease that out a little more this morning. I want to take a minute, pick up where we left off last week, and talk about this idea of how Jesus being preeminent in our marriage makes a difference. And so preeminence is a big word. If you hear that word, you're preeminent, what does that even mean? So last week I, I shared with you that really the Greek word for preeminent really means to hold first place. So in essence, for Jesus to be preeminent, it means Jesus holds first place in everything. Everything Jesus designed and created was done for the ultimate purpose of showing the world that he, he has first place in every category you can think of. So if we talk about power, who holds first place in the category of power? Jesus holds first place. If we talk about wisdom, who holds first place? Who is the wisest? Jesus is. If we talk about creativity, Jesus holds first place in that category too, surprise. If we talk about patience, Jesus holds first place in that. Who does love the best? Who holds first place? Jesus holds first place. What about authority? Who has all the authority? Who holds first place in that category? Guess who? Jesus holds first place in that category. So in every area of life, Everything we can think of, the reality is that Jesus holds first place. And therefore, within our marriage, Jesus should be taking first place. He should have ultimate say and authority in every way in our marriage. And last week I said something along the lines of the fact that often in our marriages there's a tension between a husband and a wife, between Elsabeth and Matt, over who is going to hold first place. And of course, I want to hold first place. And at times, so does she. Thus, conflicts and fights and quarrels and disagreements and nights on the couch. <laughs> Which I can say I haven't done in a very long time. I can't even remember when. But 
That's why they exist, because I know I want first place. When it, when it comes to an opinion on something, my opinion should hold first place. If something can be done one way or the other, my way holds first place. That's why there's tension. And what Jesus is saying, no, actually in your marriage, what you should be focused on is how can we see how Jesus can hold first place in all of these things that can at times cause tension within our marriages. And I think... I think that one of the predominant ways, not the only way, but one of the predominant ways that we can show that Jesus is preeminent, that Jesus holds first place in our marriage, seems to be when a wife submits and a husband loves. And that's why Paul highlights those. That's why scripture, when it comes to marriage, highlights submission and love. That's the reason, I think. Because somehow that shows, when, when a marriage functions that way, it shows that you're saying, Jesus is first, not me, not him, not her. Jesus holds first in those, when those areas are functioning the way that they are to be functioning. Now, I said this before last week that the world that you and I live in don't, doesn't really know very much about what it means to let someone else other than me hold first place. <laughs> We're in a me-centered culture where everything exists to make me happy. And after all, I belong in first place. And how that bleeds into marriage. Marriages today are all about my needs, my happiness, me, me. And that's why divorce is so out of control in our culture. America really is crazy about my needs first, me first. And I think the church, we're supposed to be the exact opposite of that, right? We're supposed to show the world what it's like to put Jesus first and not ourselves first. And that's supposed to be something the world sees. They see us putting to death our rights and not fighting for those so that instead they see that Jesus is preeminent in our lives. And I think at times, not only does the world distort this, but as a, as a church, we can distort this. I think our culture, our church culture, the, the church that we live in, in America, I think can also distort this. I have several examples here of things. I, I don't know how much detail it's helpful to go into, except there are plenty of books and seminars that you and I could attend that are supposed to be Christian books and Christian seminars that quite honestly are nothing more than the world's philosophies twisted around with some Christian lingo books that focus on his needs and her needs and how you exist to meet her needs and she should exist to meet your needs. One of the, one of the books says something very similar. The, the, the needs is what it says. This is a popular Christian book, over a billion copies sold. Wish I could gather all billion of them and put them in this field and burn them, to be honest. And that's not an exaggeration. Th this is what these books promote. The, the needs of women and men are similar but their priorities are different. That's a statement from one of these books. Listen, if your priorities in your marriage are different, your marriage is going to be a train wreck. Your priorities should be singular. How do we make the glory of Christ shine brightest in our marriage? How do I take my gifts and her gifts, her gifts and my gifts, let them both function in a way so Jesus is exalted in every way? That's the priority. I don't know how you get that from Scripture. Marriage works only when each spouse takes the time to consider the needs of others and strives to meet them. 
If you strive to meet your spouse's needs, you will always fail. If you look to your spouse to meet your needs, you are setting your marriage up for disaster. They can't do it. There's only one person you can look to to have your needs met. It's true. It's true. If you turn to your spouse, and I've done it many times, because there's something that I craved, some kind of peace or love or acceptance, you, you cannot get that from your spouse. It only comes from Jesus. One, one other last thing here that's mentioned, just to make sure we're all on the same page here, in this particular book, the author identifies the 10 most vital needs of men and women, shows husbands and wives how to satisfy those needs. I don't know how he does that, but he does it evidently in this book. He provides guidance for becoming irresistible to your spouse. Oh, is it a Hallmark movie? I hate to break it to you guys. You will never be irresistible to your wife. You won't. If, if there's a guy here and you have, you want to just take over. You, you tell us how. That's not the point of marriage, is it? And yet it invades our thinking and our feelings and we buy into this and then we get in fights, maybe knowingly or not knowingly, because our wife or our husband is not doing the things that we think need to be done for us so that our needs will be met. Listen, the world doesn't need to see that I'm irresistible to my wife. The world needs to see that Jesus is irresistible to everyone. And we all need to run to him to find the satisfaction that we need and long for. So as a side note, yes, I think marriage should be fun and romantic. And you should pursue having fun together as a couple and getting to know one another. I'm a romantic type of person at heart. But listen, if you live there, you're setting yourself up for disaster. Because you can't look to your spouse for the things that Jesus can only give. So our goal really should be, husbands and wives, that we would live together in such a way that our kids would say, in my mom and dad's life, Jesus holds first place. That our neighbors should look at us as couples and say, Christ holds first place. So maybe bringing this in, this preeminence, into what Paul is saying in verses 18 and 19, a question to ask so we're, we're moving now in the direction of trying to figure out how do we actually submit and love in light of what Paul's already said. A question could be, wives, does the way you submit show off that Jesus holds first place? I think that's a fair question. I think it's not prescriptive. It's not giving you a formula, but does it? If, if In your heart, can you say, the way I submit shows off that Jesus holds first place. Men, husbands, listen, does the way you love your wife show that Jesus holds first place? Does it show that he holds the number one position in your life? Now, some of these things can still seem a little abstract. And I think what Paul is doing here is he's, he's moving in a direction to make these more practical and to give us handles to hold on to. So that's what we're going to do now. We are going to transition to verse 12 of chapter 3. So I need you to look there. We're working our way through Colossians. We're saying, how do the things Paul's already said in Colossians apply to marriage? How do the things that Paul's already said in Colossians apply to wives submitting and husbands loving? 
And now we're turning the corner from him being preeminent, holding first place, and now we're going to talk about some ways that that happens. Paul is leading us along a, a path here. He's laid a foundation. And now in verse 12 to verse 14, he's going to tell us very practically, what does it look like when Jesus is holding first place? How does it function? What are the characteristics of that? So Colossians 3 verse 12, you guys there? Okay, so now we're getting into like nitty gritty. Put on then, he says, chapter 3 verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So I want to make just two points from this. Two points. You guys tracking? Staying with me? Warm? Here we go. Two points from this. We just read that little section. We're going to do two, 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 look at two things. One is we need to see our spouse the way Jesus sees our spouse. And number two, we need to treat our spouse the way Jesus treats our spouse. Okay? So that's where we're going with this, this little section. We need to see our spouse the way Jesus sees our spouse, number one. So let's look at verse 12. How does Jesus see you? How does Jesus see your spouse? Look at verse 12. Put on then as God's, what's it say? Chosen. Ones, holy, what's the third description? Beloved. Before you will understand how to submit, ladies that are here, husbands, before you will understand how to properly love, properly love, we need to understand that God has identified you and your spouse as chosen, holy, and beloved. So you need to look at your spouse right now and say, you are holy, you are chosen, you are beloved. And after the husband looks at the wife and says that, the wife should look at the husband and say it back. You are holy, you are chosen, you are beloved. This is massive for your marriage. This is massive for your relationship as a husband and a wife. So let's just take a second here. Let's just tease these out because this is their identity. The first is chosen. Listen, you must embrace this personally and you must look at your spouse and identify them the same way that before the foundation of the world, God chose you in Christ and God chose your spouse in Christ. Paul said it this way in Ephesians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Paul wants us to feel the amazement of the reality that you have been chosen in Christ, and therefore you have every heavenly blessing Look, the, the doctrine of election is sweet and beautiful. It gives us confidence that Jesus is for us and not waiting for us to perform in some way in order to get his blessing. The blessing is secured when Christ chose you 
and he chose you before your body had its first heartbeat. That is really good news. Really, really good news. So you're chosen. Then he says you are holy. You are holy. This means you are set apart for God. This is positional holiness first before it can be anything practical that we do in our lives. And I don't think it's a stretch here to say that for you to be holy, set apart for God, to be with God, that you must be righteous to get there. You have to be perfect in every way. And we know from our studies before that this is really the doctrine of justification, right? You've got to be forgiven and you've got to be clothed. So you've got to believe that for yourself. I am justified in every way. So I don't go to my spouse trying to feel justified by how they view me. And I, my job is not to justify my wife based on how well she performs in some area of life. We are justified. I'm justified. She's justified. She's holy. I'm holy. And then the last one is beloved. Jesus deeply loves you. And he deeply loves your spouse. I love it that we've memorized the prayer in Ephesians where Paul says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth has been named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to know how high and wide and long and broad is the love of Christ. It's massive. His love is deep and amazing and you have to embrace that for yourself and you have to realize that that is how Jesus views your spouse. He loves them. So maybe be good practice every morning as you get out of bed to look at your spouse and to remind them you are chosen, you are holy, you are beloved. As you get in bed at night, look at your spouse and remind them you are holy, you are chosen, and you are beloved. That is how Jesus sees you. And you need to get your joy and your worth and your satisfaction and your identity in this and not in your spouse. You need that. So wives, Paul says in verse 16, 18, wives, submit to your chosen, holy, beloved husband, as is fitting in the Lord. And I wonder if that phrase, in the Lord, is talking about the reality that you have been chosen and beloved and you are holy. Men, we are to love our chosen, holy, and beloved wives, and we are not to be harsh with them. We need to be reminded of this. We need to believe this. We need to embrace this. Listen, I believe the best thing you can do for your marriage is to spend time meditating on that. The best thing you can do for your marriage is for you to meditate on the fact that Christ calls you chosen, beloved. Sorry, my page turned and holy. The best thing you could do for your marriage. And then he transitions here from talking about how we're to see each other to how we are to treat one another. And we saw these. Here's the list. 
of ways that we are to treat one another. So look at verse 12 again with me. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Here's how we're to treat one another. In light of who we are, here's how we treat one another. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, loving one another. They're all there in the text. This is how we treat one another. And in case you didn't notice on this list, this is the way Christ treats you. So we've got to grab a hold of the reality first and believe that that's how he treats me. Therefore, that is how I get to treat my spouse. Let's look at these really brief. Just want to say a few words about each one of these. I think they come in pairs to some degree. I think this is functional grace. Remember I talked about how our marriages should be saturated with grace. Grace should function. This is, this is functional grace. To have a compassionate heart expresses grace. So I think these might go together. Some theologians say they do. That this idea of having a compassionate heart is the heart attitude. The action is to be kind. So he pairs these together. So it's your heart needs to be compassionate. And if it is, you will have the action of kindness. We're to have humble hearts. If we do, then meekness will flow out and so on. So let's just take a second to think about these. We are to have a compassionate heart that leads to showing kindness to our spouse. A compassionate heart that leads to kindness. It means we are, we are broken over the things that break God's heart. We are identifying with the weakness of each other so that we're kind to one another. And he says, humble. We're to be humble. Our hearts are to be meek. Meekness, tenderness, brokenness should come out of our lives and out of our hearts towards our spouse. Listen, these are, these are things that are absolutely impossible to do. Do you know that? Unless you are deeply rooted in the gospel and drinking daily from the realities of the grace you receive from Christ, you have no hope of having a compassionate heart. You will never be humble and meek unless you are grabbing deeply and believing and treasuring and enjoying the kindness and the compassion and the meekness that Jesus has shown to you. That's where the power comes from. If we live there, it will permeate our marriage. He talks about being patient, long-suffering, slow to anger. And he describes it with two participles, two ING words, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, bearing and forgiving. That patience seen by your spouse will be manifest in bearing with them and forgiving them. That's what patience looks like. There's this idea in this of enduring with each other. Perhaps your spouse has some habits or patterns or some idiosyncrasies that drive you crazy. Just maybe. Something they do, something they say, something that just drives you nuts. I think what Paul is saying here is we are to bear with one another. We are not to try to change them. We are to endure with them. I've heard people say things like, they're not the same person I married. No, duh. 28 years, 30 years, 20 years. People change. 
And guess what? You're not the same person that they married either. So we should expect that. And that's why he says we need to bear with one another. Endure with one another. I think this is the only really, this explains the how and the why of why our marriages really can paint a picture of Jesus' covenant relationship with his bride, the church. Think about how long suffering Jesus is with the church. So if my marriage is supposed to paint a picture of that, don't you think there's going to be some long suffering in my marriage? If our marriage is all happy-go-lucky, everybody's okay, whatever. That doesn't paint a picture. The picture is Jesus is long-suffering and patient with his church. And so when we are patient and long-suffering with one another, we paint a picture of what Jesus and his relationship with the church is like for the world to see. And then he talks about forgiveness, the other ING, that patience comes across as we forgive one another the same way that Jesus forgave us. Again, see the gospel connection. Why do I forgive my spouse? Well, because Jesus has forgiven me. And then I ask myself, well, how did Jesus forgive me? How did he forgive me? Well, you don't ask forgiveness, and yet he forgives. You do the same thing over and over, he forgives. You don't even know what you did wrong. You ever been there in marriage? Spouse is upset at you, and you're like, I don't even know what I did. What does Jesus do? He says, we don't even know what we do, and he forgives You don't know what you did when you did what you did and he forgives you. We sin intentionally, he forgives. We sin in ignorance, he forgives. Jesus is just forgiving us all the time for things we're not even aware of. And he says, now go to your spouse and forgive them the same way. Again, the gospel and grace needs to function in our marriages. And then he says, of course, at the end, and above all these, put on love, which binds it all together. And you guys know that love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So love, the love of Christ, needs to function within our marriages. I'm going to wrap this up here with just saying this. Husbands, listen. This is outside of what we are able to do on our own. The the challenge here is above and beyond anything you could ever do on your own. Men, we have got to drink deeply of the gospel realities until we are broken, until we are humble, until we are compassionate, until we are thankful, so that somehow we'll be able to love our wives and to put to death being harsh. Paul highlights, do not be harsh with them. Why? Because he knows that your tendency and mine, men, listen, is to be harsh. Or he wouldn't have to say it. So how do we as men put this to death? We go to the gospel until we are broken, humble, compassionate, thankful, till we are brought so low that we're able to say, I have no reason to ever be harsh with my wife. And in fact, instead to love her the way that Christ loved the church. And wives, the same is true for you. What wife on her own wants to submit 
Uh, I've been pastoring a long time. I don't think I've ever met a woman, and if you're here, you can, I can not have to say this anymore, who was like, I can't wait to submit. I love submitting. When I read those verses, my heart rejoices with the idea of submitting. I don't think that's the natural bent for a lady. Just like it's not the natural bent for a man to not be harsh. This is outside of what you're able to do unless you ladies drink deeply of the gospel and become overwhelmed with the kindness and the mercy of Jesus. And unless you desperately want more than anything for your marriage, for Christ to have first place, any other goal will make submission miserable or a chore at best. So let's drink of the gospel. Husbands, let's find the power to love our wives and the power to put to death harshness by going to Christ for brokenness and humility. Wives, go to your Jesus to find the joy and the satisfaction and the hope that you need in order to embrace the calling to be submissive to your husbands. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. And if this is still fuzzy in your head, which maybe it is in some ways, practice it. Help each other practice this. Show each other what it means to connect what Christ has done to your marriage. Connect. Help each other to understand how, how much your heart can be transformed when you embrace the truths of the gospel at a deep and satisfying level. Because when we do, everything else in life gets put in place. Being a Christian is not about praying a prayer and moving on. It's about embracing Christ every day as your joy and your satisfaction and your greatest treasure so that you move to your spouse open and ready to give and not trying to get. And so this week, I pray that we're able to go through this list, that we're able to draw faith and strength from the reality that you have been chosen, you are holy and you are beloved so that you can love and live with your spouse the way that Jesus has called us to. I want to pray for you. Kaylin's going to come. We're going to sing another song. But let me pray. Lord Jesus, it is infinitely mind-boggling to think that you would call us chosen, holy, and beloved. It's absolutely out of this world that we could say that of ourselves. And Jesus, it's one thing even to say it, but for us to believe it, help us, I pray. May we at the deepest fibers of our heart believe in greater ways this week that we have been chosen, that we are holy, and that we're beloved. And then I pray you would help us to then turn to our spouses and to be able to look them in the eye and be able to remind them of the reality that they are holy, chosen, and beloved. And then I pray, Jesus, from that foundation, you would help us to have compassion towards one another and patience and meekness and humility. Help us desire to see Jesus holding the first and foremost place in our marriage by how we treat one another. So Spirit, come, I pray. Transform us. Open our hearts to the beautiful well of the gospel so that our hearts will be radically changed 
as we find everything we need in Christ, I pray. Amen.